You are listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Join me at the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Bill Rutenberg, your host, and with me today is Dr. Mark Rothenberg. Dr. Rothenberg is a professor of pediatrics and director of the Division of Allergy and Immunology at the Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center and the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine. He is an acknowledged expert on the molecular mechanisms of allergic disorders and was the recipient of the 2007 Amy Johnson Award from the Society for Pediatric Research. Today we are discussing the immunology and genetics of eosinophilic esophagitis. Welcome, Dr. Rothenberg, and thank you for joining us at the Clinician's Roundtable. Eosinophilic esophagitis seems to be a cacophony of immune dysregulation. The children have an extensive list of severe food intolerances or allergies, and it has to be a perplexing problem. Could you give us a unifying concept so that we could understand better the basic pathophysiology of this disorder? A unifying concept, Bill. (laughs) (laughs) Or multiple parts that we could put together like a puzzle. Uh Uh-huh. Well, the unifying concept is that the immune system is a double-edged sword, and food itself is a tremendous challenge to the immune system. Normally, we are exposed to hundreds and hundreds of different substances, particularly proteins, every day in our diet. But yet the immune system doesn't have any response to this. It recognizes the food is foreign, but it says nothing's wrong. In these patients with eosinophilic esophagitis, the immune system responds to the food in a very different way. It says that there's a problem here, and perhaps the food is recognized as a foreign toxin, particularly a parasite, which is the arm of the immune system that usually gets triggered, the anti-parasite response. Now, those immune cells that are recognizing the food attack the food that's now uh, associated with the GI tract. The first place in the GI tract that's associated with the food exposure is the esophagus. Those immune cells now come into the esophagus and start releasing their toxic substances designed to kill the germ, the parasite. Instead, they start harming and inflaming and swelling that esophagus. The esophagus responds by getting uh, into trouble and, and not working well and developing dysfunction and and doesn't swallow the food well, hence the patient begins to vomit, perhaps have pain, may have food eventually getting stuck in the throat if the esophagus starts to get really inflamed and scarred. That's our unifying theory right now about this particular process. Last year you published a paper in the Journal of Clinical Investigation regarding a striking transcriptase signature in patients with EE. Tell us about it and why this is so exciting and What do we know about the genetic predisposition for this disorder? Well, this is a great time for medical research, especially for immune-based diseases, because we're taking the last 20 and 30 years of research when mentors of both of us, Bill, Dr. Fred Rosen, may rest in peace, developed some of the fundamental basis of understanding how the immune system works. Today, the challenges for the doctors like you and I is to apply that great knowledge from great people like Dr. Rosen, apply it to our patients' benefit. And one of the fortunes we're able to do is to use this vast amount of information, including our new technology associated with the genetics of the human genome, to actually understand very quickly what's going on in terms of the genetics of a particular disease. How does the whole body's uh, instruction pathway work in a particular disease? What have you learned so far? What we've learned so far is that of all the genes in the body, This particular disease involves uh, about 1% of the genome, of the gene um, that are in the cell. 1% of the genes are actually 
getting turned on and getting turned off in ways that's leading to the problem. So what we need to do is correct that 1% of the genes that are actually dysregulated. Now, we have strong evidence to believe that not all of those 1% of the genes, because that represents about 300 genes, just 1%, and that's certainly a lot of problems So if you think about trying to fix 300, but a small subset of that may be the primary driving force in this particular disease. So we've honed in on what we think is the primary component of this genome, this transcriptome, to actually figure out diagnostics, the development of molecular tools to understand the presence of the disease, but also how to design new treatment for the disease based on molecular targeting, targeting those particular genes and correcting them. I understand that research into the interleukins, especially IL-5 and exotaxin-3, may be significantly linked to EE and may also lead to specific treatments. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, Bill. Probably the most exciting research and that we have done so far is that we took this genomic approach, looking at the whole genome with tens of thousands of genes, and if we had to see what is the most striking and, and single gene that correlates with this, it turns out it's a particular gene that we call eotaxin-3. Eotaxin-3 is by no coincidence also a, a gene that actually sounds like eosinophil, because we had characterized that gene actually about 10 years ago from the Human Genome Project that was being completed and we actually define this gene as being involved in eosinophil activation. Now, this gene appears to be a primary event, a primary dysregulation and, and uh, variation in these particular patients. So what this is telling us, that particular drugs that interfere with the action of this gene may be therapeutically useful. And indeed, in animal settings, preclinical systems, we can show that we can protect against the disease by interfering with the pathway. Now, this is currently fueling the pharmaceutical industry to develop drugs that can actually block this particular pathway. The other one that's very promising and certainly much more further along in terms of patient applications is to interfere with the neosinophil growth factor called interleukin-5. We showed in preclinical settings that this was upstream of development of eosinophilic esophagitis. By blocking it by different approaches with antibodies or with the so-called gene knockout where you eliminate the gene in mice, we can protect against the development of experimental EE. And then we are able to take this information as a rationale to develop a clinical trial with a yet unproved uh, drug called anti-IL-5 and demonstrate that this is both a safe and effective tr therapy in this early clinical trial. So we are very optimistic that this new approach, which is a biological therapy, an antibody-based drug, will someday, hopefully not too long from now, be available to help these patients live a more healthy life. There seems to be a male preponderance in this disorder. Have that a genetic basis, too? We do know that the disease runs in males. About 80% of the patients are males. And this is common in other eosinophil-associated problems as well, including the hyperisophilic syndrome. The molecular and genetic basis for this is yet to be uncovered, but we find that to be one of the classic characteristics of this problem. Just another example of men being the weaker sex. Mm -hmm. Other common markers of allergy, IgE levels, are they helpful in following these patients, the response to therapy, or in diagnosing the problem? Again, I know you need endoscopy, but I'm thinking of other tests that a pediatrician or a family physician might obtain that would suggest to them that they have this as an underlying disorder rather than GERD, which I guess is what it's been confused with most frequently. Well, IgE levels run higher in people with atopy, allergic uh, diseases, and this is an allergic disease. So identifying the presence of atopy 
through various means, including IgE levels, would increase your threshold for considering this in the diagnosis, in the di differential diagnosis. I would not, however, recommend being too attached to the IgE level because it's relatively nonspecific, and it's, it's certainly um, just one of the many markers that's associated with this disease. Anti-IgE is available for the treatment of steroid-dependent asthmatics. Does it have any role in the treatment of EE, especially the unresponsive patient? We haven't formally looked at the effect of anti-IgE in a clinical trial in this particular disease, although some of my investigators at other universities, I believe, are currently looking at that. However, I can tell you, Bill, that we've seen patients present on anti-IgE therapy present with eosinophilic esophagitis. So my hunch is also based on our molecular understanding of the molecular mechanism and where IgE fits into the picture that anti-IgE is not going to end up to be a very effective treatment for this particular disease. Have you looked at other components of the immune system, uh, relationship between Th1, Th2 lymphocytes, any abnormalities detected in the CD4, CD8 classifications of lymphocytes? Yes, this disease is highly associated with a Th2 uh, activation in the blood and also particularly in the esophagus. So we've got activated Th2 cells, making their Th2-associated products called cytokines that are actually triggering the transcriptome that we've defined, particularly the eotaxin-3 gene. So this is a very strongly driven Th2 disease. And recall that the allergen itself is probably what's driving the Th2 cell. So the allergen is triggering the Th2 cell to make particular molecules. And in this case, we know specifically that IL-13 is a key factor, and that IL-13 is actually inducing the eotaxin-3. Is there any role for the innate immune system, tumor necrosis factor, VCAM, GMCSF? Well, eosinophil itself, Bill, is an innate immune cell. It does not carry a classic memory receptor such as an immunoglobulin or T-cell receptor, so it is an innate immune cell. It does respond to a variety of um, pathogens through pattern recognition receptors, and uh, it responds to those triggers, and those are likely to be operational in this disease in part. Does the eosinophil level predict the course of the disease? Yes, Bill. It seems to be, as far as we could tell right now, is the best predictor of the clinical symptomatology and the disease severity. Could one make an anti-eosinophil antibody or do plasmapheresis and selectively remove eosinophils? Well, we could design a strategy, and we do have technology that we've developed, and particularly in preclinical settings, and we've got some active research protocols to do an eosinophil depletion, and that would theoretically be effective in this disease. I would, however, say that the other strategies that we mentioned earlier are probably more realistic ways of blocking the eosinophil. The anti-IL-5, which is essentially the eosinophil food in the body, the growth factor of eosinophils. If you get rid of IL-5 through the antibody approach, you will eliminate eosinophils, or at least reduce them at a high level. You know, we're talking about, about a tenfold decrease in eosinophils in the blood and also in the esophagus in these patients. So that's one way of going. The other way of going is to eliminate the eosinophil infiltration into the esophagus through the eotaxin-3 inhibitor that we're developing. If you could take off your scientist hat and think completely out of the box, where do you think this disease and our understanding of this disease is going to be, say, in five or ten years, in terms of identifying a trigger and what's keeping the engine going? Well, what 
I tell my patients, especially because most of them are pediatrics, I usually say by the time this kid gets to college, I'm very optimistic that the treatment for this disease and our understanding will be dramatically different and only greatly improved compared to what it is today. So I think in five to ten years now, we're likely to have several different FDA-approved drugs. We will hopefully have a handle on what we call is the tolerance pathway, is, is basically manipulating the immune system to either become tolerant or accepting certain types of exposures like food or doing immunotherapy, which is basically desensitization to the particular allergen and have very effective ways of doing that to food antigens. That would certainly be a fascinating breakthrough because it would have so many applications to children in general. But I would like to thank Dr. Mark Rothenberg, who has been our guest, and we have been discussing the immunologic aspects of eosinophilic esophagitis. I am Dr. Bill Rutenberg. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening. I wish you a good day and good health.